so, so the main question I want to ask is, do you recall where we sourced our bottles for that in-apartment winemaking? Well, of course, if there's there's uh, there's bottles everywhere in the everybody's recycling bins. We just went out and um, gathered what we needed, as I recall. Didn't take us very long either. An hour or so to pick up enough uh, enough bottles for whatever we were doing. Two dozen. Easy. Easy peasy. Do you remember the first wine that we actually made? Yeah, we made a Valpolicella. I remember that distinctly because I'd never had it before, and which is probably a good thing because then I didn't know what it was supposed to taste like. <laughs> Having had one since... I don't think ours tasted anything like what it's supposed to be. We didn't come particularly close. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to your Friday and welcome back to the Chef Demoni podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, Chef Demoni is a podcast all about food. Years ago, I worked as a professional cook. These days, I work as a lawyer and Chef Demoni is my way of staying in touch with the culinary world now that I'm back in the land of offices. Today's episode is a great mix of lawyers and food and beer and breweries and old roommates. The voice you heard in the opening, along with mine, was my good friend Ian Dixon. Ian and I were roommates during law school in Vancouver, and for a few years afterward when we were both junior lawyers, and along the way we got into some home brewing. Funds being tight and resourcefulness being high, we simply scoured our neighborhood recycling bins for old bottles. A perfectly sensible approach, probably environmentally friendly, but I do wonder how clean we managed to get those bottles. Anyway, brew we did, making everything from Valpolicella, which was terrible, to ice wine, which I actually made with Ian's chemist brother while Ian was away on an exchange term in third year, and that ice wine was surprisingly drinkable. I guess that chemistry training came in handy. It was great to reminisce with Ian, who is still a lawyer practicing in Vancouver. He is married to another lawyer practicing in Vancouver, and together I have no doubt that they drink better wine than he and I did back in the day when we were brewing it under the bathroom sink in our apartment. I've been thinking about roommates because my two guests today were once college roommates themselves back in the day in Syracuse. My first guest is Will Corman. Will and I connected over Instagram, where he goes by the great handle, Will the Cooking Lawyer. He is a criminal defense trial and appellate lawyer in Boston, and Will is a seriously enthusiastic home cook. Check out his Instagram feed, you'll see what I mean. I love that Will doesn't take the whole cooking thing, or the whole social media thing for that matter, too seriously. He loves to cook, and he loves to share what he makes through Instagram. It's great. In our talk today, you'll hear a bit about Will's legal practice, you'll hear how he finds cooking to be a great counterpoint to that practice, and you'll hear about the importance to Will of supporting local producers and suppliers. Will is also a fan of CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, and at the end of our interview, he's got a great tip for home cooks to help us all use up the produce we might often be overwhelmed by in the weekly CSA box. I know that has been an issue for me. And after our interview, Will reached out to me to let me know that his college roommate, Matt, had opened a brewery in New York, so of course I had to follow that lead. That is the second interview you'll hear today, me speaking with Matt Curtin of Sing Sing Kill Brewery. You will hear all about that brewery and about its ominous-sounding name. 
Right now, though, join me between British Columbia and Massachusetts. Here's my interview with Will, the cooking lawyer. Will, first of all, thanks for joining me. It is wonderful to connect here between the west coast of Canada and the east coast of the U.S. from Gibsons, B.C. to Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for being on Cheftimony. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, Cheftimony is all about food, uh, but when I meet a fellow food-loving lawyer, I have to ask some questions. I love to learn a little bit about that person's practice. So, so please tell us a bit about what you do outside the kitchen. Sure. So uh, I've been a criminal defense attorney for about 25 years now. Uh, at this stage of the game, my practice almost exclusively is based on representing individuals who are charged with sexually based offenses, uh, both state, federally, sort of throughout the New England area. Wow, interesting. And and you're doing uh, you're doing trial level work, and I think I saw on your website you're doing some appellate work as well. Correct. I've been doing appeals, gosh, I think even longer than I've been doing criminal defense. But yeah, both my my appellate practice is grows out of my trial practice, but it's almost all, it's almost exclusively criminal. And even that component is almost exclusively this particular niche set of offenses, if you will. Now we're, we're in trying times, of course, with COVID, as we were just discussing before we started the, you know, the formal part of the interview, but I'm curious, what's it like working in Boston? I've only been to your city once. I was there very briefly. I didn't get a big chance to explore, but if, if we put COVID aside, what is the culinary scene like? How does it work when you're just going out for a dinner, perhaps with your family? What's it like when you're busy at the office running out for lunch? What's what's the scene like? Boston has a thriving restaurant community, both upper end restaurants, as well as smaller restaurants that are fronted by restaurant groups, right down to the typical mom and pop places here and there. I love this city as far as its dining is concerned. There's always something new to try. The chefs, I think, are, are on the most part brilliant, fantastic seafood We're right on the coast. No one's afraid to try new things. There isn't any, I don't believe there's any traditional Boston cuisine, if you will. I think that there's a variety of influences, which is what I think makes any city great to both visit and live when it comes to dining. Absolutely. I feel the same applies to Vancouver. We've got just such a mix uh, of cultural influences here. It really is impressive. Are, are there any particular standouts? You know, if I'm going to be in Boston for a weekend, would you say this this is the restaurant you got to go to or this is the chef you have to check out? Well, it's funny because you started this sentence, if you will, by saying, but for COVID, dot, dot, dot. You know, for the past, gosh, it's almost been 18 months now. My family and I and friends of mine, we've really pivoted towards keeping smaller restaurants afloat. Um, there's a bunch of mom and pop restaurants, as I mentioned before, that I think have really struggled through these times. So I can't tell you the last time I went to a larger style restaurant. Uh, it's probably been a good 18 months now. And in the interim, I've really focused on smaller places, neighborhood restaurants throughout Boston. And I live just south of Boston. So folks around here uh, really are grateful for the business we're able to give them right now because it has been, uh, it has been very, very difficult. No, absolutely. Well, well, good on you. Yeah, the the independent restaurant scene. I I often say to my law colleagues here, it's uh, it's a great time to be a digital paper pusher because we're so lucky in our career we can do so much. Right? So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's get to the kitchen now, Will. We connected over Instagram where you go by the great handle, Will the Cooking Lawyer. And I think maybe the best way to start my questions in this segment is to ask you to tell us about some of the phrases and the hashtags that I see on your account. So, so lawyer, I see in your profile. We know about that, of course. I also see dad. Are you often cooking for your family? So, uh, yes. So I've always loved to cook. I, I try to cook for my kids at least a couple times a week. I, often, I go out a lot as well. Um, not recently, but the, the Instagram account really did come out of COVID. We were here, we were in lockdown probably starting mid-March. And I don't think that my kids or I went to a restaurant or even really had takeout for the first month or so. I think we really didn't know what was going on. Just like so many people, we were concerned, we were scared. So we really focused on sitting around the table every night uh, for probably a good two months. And I have teenage boys, so they are far more tech savvy and social media savvy than I ever would be or will be, I should say. We started taking pictures of what we cooked just for fun and they'd send it to their friends just so I could get picked on. Uh, and then it evolved into this, hey, why don't you get an Instagram account? That way my friends can see what you're eating. And we can all laugh about it together. And it sort of grew out organically from there to this sort of silly nonsense that it is now. And I love it. I don't take it very seriously, but you know, I, I don't have fancy lights. I don't I don't uh, zoom in close on anything I cook. I just take a picture every night of what we make for dinner and post it online. And post it online. There it is. I love it. And I was thinking with, with a couple of teenagers in the house, you've got a very receptive crowd for your cooking, right? There's nothing like a ravenous teenager to go through some culinary creation. It's, it, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. When, when my, my oldest, who, who is 17, when he was little, we thought it was really, really cute that he loved to eat sushi. And we didn't think about the fact that when he was 14, feeding a 14, 15-year-old sushi, um, you have to take out another mortgage on the house. So <laughs> it, we had a great idea in the beginning, and then we began to regret it. I, I, I tell a story. About four, four years ago, uh, the kids and I went to New York City, and we ended up going to Nobu, which is a fantastic, very, very high-end restaurant. And the smartest thing I did was an hour before we went to Nobu, I made each of my kids eat two pieces of pizza because otherwise one of us was going to have to sell a kidney in order to pay the bill. <laughs> in order to pay the bill. My, my wife and I have been to the Nobu in Las Vegas. We went twice and both times we did not entertain a full meal. We sat at the bar and had some snacks and drinks and it was fantastic. The food was amazing. But um, yeah, when the bill showed up, it, uh, we knew we'd been somewhere. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Now, one of the lines I see on your account quite regularly, Will, is I never make the same thing twice. And I'd love for you to tell us about that because I'm a guy who loves to make the same thing over and over. I'll get on a kick. Uh, Right now, it's sourdough bread and variations, and I keep doing the same thing over and over. My long-suffering wife puts up with the same creation day after day. Uh, But you're more creative. You're in there doing different things. So tell us about that. Well, I don't know that I'm more creative. I'm a cookbook cook. Most of the things that I make, almost nothing I make is original. Uh, occasionally, it can be a variation on a theme. Uh, I started, I, I really started cooking during law school, quite candidly, because I needed some stress reliever. Didn't really know how to cook, but learned early on that I could follow a recipe down to the letter. And I began to accumulate cookbooks. And I love cookbooks. And there's so much out there. There's so many different styles and varieties and cuisines that I decided early on that 
you know, why make the same thing over and over again? And instead, let's just open up a cookbook at random, pick a page, and that's what we'll have for dinner. And get to it. You know, I remember a cousin of mine saying years ago, there was some discussion around people saying, I can't cook. You know, I just, I, I can't do it. And his position, I think he's right. I'd, I'd like your thoughts on this was, look, if you can read, you can cook to some level. I'm not far off from that. I'm not okay. far off from that. You know, there there is some, I think there is some intuition that kicks in. I mean, every piece of equipment is different. My oven actually runs a little cold. So you have to know to turn it up 20 degrees higher than the recipe would suggest. You know, cooking really is, you can be as technical as you want when you read a cookbook, but you do have to rely on your senses. You know, does that smell like it's burning? Um, does that <laughs> yes. sound like it's overcooking? Is there spattering going on that I didn't anticipate from reading a two-page recipe. So there is a piece of that as well. But I do agree that if, if you can read, you can you can make yourself plenty of meals um, without knowing how to cook. And I'm putting air quotes around the word knowing. <laughs> right. I think maybe the perfect approach is somewhere between if you can read, you can cook on the one hand, and then the advice I used to get when I was cooking professionally from the from the real pro chefs, and I would ask them a question, you know, how long do I cook this? What what do I hear? And the answer often came back to me, well, cook it till it's done. And I, <laughs> I said, that's not so helpful. But, but to your point, it helped me develop that intuition. You know, what, mm. do, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Right, and, exactly. And, and you get that over time. All right. Another quote that I see regularly, and I mean regularly once every seven days on your Instagram <laughs> account. <laughs> this is on Sunday, we make pickles. I guess that's self-explanatory, but but please talk about it. Where does this love for pickles come from? Sure. So I actually the history of pickles and my love for pickles came out of the same thing, which essentially is necessity. And, and, and I don't mean to be glib when I say that. So we have a fantastic uh, CSA farm here in Milton, Mass, where I live, the Brooklyn Community, Brookwood Community Farm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the usual CSA, but you get a lot. And despite the fact that my kids will eat anything, you know, I mean, they'll eat anything, but there's only so much bok choy they'll eat on a particular week. And so we found ourselves having plenty left every week. And so what I ended up doing was, well, how I don't want this to go to waste. I can't keep freezing ice cube trays full of greens and turnips and peppers. Uh, so I started making pickles every week. And now we do a I have a CSA that sometimes I take part in over the summers. And I also do a produce box that comes every week. And every Sunday, I see what's left. And before I get the new one, I make pickles. You make pickles. Fair enough. So are you doing, do you have a standard approach and a standard brine recipe? Are you doing what I call quick pickles, where it's, my my approach is sort of 50-50 vinegar and water of some description, salt, and maybe some other stuff? Uh, yes. I, I mean, I use the word pickles loosely. So there are fermented foods. There's some kimchi making that goes on. There's some preserves. There's some jams. I don't, I don't want to change the tagline every week. So <laughs> right. Okay. I'm sending you pickles, but, you know, we'll, we'll use that term expansively. Right. The approach can change. Okay. Another is another phrase I see on your site, and this is a hashtag. I think it's great. It appeals to me as a lawyer and as a fan of cooking. Hashtag only guilty of deliciousness. So again, I suppose this is self-explanatory, but but maybe is this a connection to your professional work? It sounds from the work that you do that civil rights, civil liberties are important to you. Absolutely. You know, I, sometimes I think of hashtags as the same way you would name a boat, something sort of glib, something sort of cheeky. 
And so that that's that's where that came from. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm only guilty of deliciousness. <laughs> that's that's all that's going on here. All that's going on. Fair enough. Where I, I, I appreciate you say you started cooking in law school, but do you have early inspirations for cooking? Did you was it an interest as a kid? Did you cook with a parent? Do you have do you have a longer term sort of connection to the culinary world? I, I actually don't. I mean, my mom always cooked. Uh, you know, I grew up in the seventies, and you know, you didn't go out to eat more than once every few weeks back then. And um, I think my mom was an intuitive cook. She, she would make dinner many nights a week. So that's probably when it started. But, you know, other than that, I, you know, I obviously I, I enjoy eating. I love nothing more than going to restaurants. But I think that my my fundamentals of cooking really did start during law school. It really was. I need something to get my mind off of this uh, and something that I will know exactly how long it will take from beginning to end. Uh, right. Golfer, golf can last for hours. It's you know, I have this recipe will take forty minutes to cook. That's great because that's all I have. So that's all. Start it and get it done. All the time I have. Fair enough. Just to decide on law school, I was uh, speaking with somebody recently about stress and exams and that kind of thing. And thinking back to my law school career, I'm curious if it was the same for you in the U.S. They, the law school powers that be, determined that our marks would be based 100% on our final exams, which to me was a uniquely stress-inducing approach. And it, it almost encouraged months of procrastination and then, and then weeks of panic. And so <laughs> I think back to that not, not so fondly. But was, was law school structured similarly for you or was it? Um, yeah. Sure. The beginning of law school certainly was. Mm-hmm. You take the, the the pillars, if you will. You take criminal law. You take constitutional law, contracts, and those those classes are all geared towards that. It's one exam at the end of the semester or the end or the end of the year. Absolutely stress inducing. I am a huge procrastinator, uh, so the end of the year would be a very very stressful time for me. Um, and then as law school progressed, the second year a little bit, and then the third year, there are some seminar classes and some writing classes that you take where it's a little different. But certainly in the beginning. Beginning. It was like you suggested. It's, it's all in. It's it's one day, make or break. I remember it. Uh, can't say fondly, but I remember <laughs> it. <laughs> now I notice, Will, that in a lot of the Instagram posts that you put up, you will tag your suppliers. So some names that uh, that I have seen: uh, Wolf's Fish, Misfits Market, Walden Local Meat. These stand out to me from the little bits that I've looked at them as very much local purveyors sourcing sourcing really great ingredients. So why is it important to you to buy from the suppliers that you do? Sure. So again, I, I will say, tip of the hat to my kids, they were the ones who suggested hashtags. I didn't know what a hashtag was when I, I started going down this rabbit hole. And they said, this is what you do. You put a hashtag on your account. And then other people who follow those accounts will follow you. And I said, Oh, all right, let's see if that works. And lo and behold, it, it, it turned into its own thing. So that's how it started. But, you know, especially Wolf's Fish and Walden Local Meats, which are two very local companies, Misfits is a, is a national company. I, I do think it's, I do think it's important to support uh, local folks as much as we can. You know, I, I'm not a locavore by any stretch of the imagination, but there is something appealing to, 
first of all, helping out folks in the community, and we can use that term as expansively as we want. Wolf's Fish is a fantastic example. Uh, they've been around for quite some time. They, they're here in Boston, fantastic um, produce. Walden Local Meats has also been around. I do think it's important to, to support our local economies to the extent that we can. And, and again, I, I don't want to keep defaulting to the COVID scenario, but especially now, especially now. You know, both those places pivoted. Um, Wolf's Fish did not have a retail distribution. I think they had a small fish store, but it was almost all wholesale to restaurateurs. And then when COVID started, they realized that they had to pivot. And now you can get fantastic restaurant quality uh, seafood from them. But I do think it's important to to buy local um, and support whoever you can. There's a small Asian grocery store in Quincy, Massachusetts, which isn't far from where I am. I spend a lot of time shopping there. If I'm physically in a grocery store right now, and again, with the COVID asterisk there, uh, I'll go there because I think it's important to support uh, local folks. Uh, and I actually think it's very important right now to support our our, our Asian purveyors, um, Asian American Pacific or Pacific Islanders. Um, there's a lot going on right now. So anything we can do to help those folks out um, support their community, support their businesses. I'm, I'm 100% behind. That's wonderful to hear. It's interesting, isn't it, how food can be and the choices around food that we make can be, should be political in some ways. I think so. I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not shunning or avoiding other stores right now because of any perceived political viewpoint of theirs, but I am going out of my way and my family, we're going out of our way to really uh, support those in the community who right now need it. As I said, some small restaurants, uh, restaurants in Chinatown. Chinatown in Boston used to be a thriving uh, community with tons of restaurants, tons of stores. COVID came and shut down entirely. And now we have this, you know, unbelievable wave of anti-Asian sentiment throughout the U.S. And anything that we can do to support those small restaurants, those those communities, I, I think is something we need to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, Will. I want to move on to similarities or not, depending on your answer, between the practice of law and cooking. These are disparate areas, but just because of my sort of work experience, they they both matter to me. And I've put this podcast together that that talks about both topics. I'll give you an example. One similarity that I see is is both when they're taken as careers, the practice of law and and culinary work, being a chef are often perceived to be these glamorous pursuits. But behind the scenes, when you get into them, although they can be interesting and rewarding, they're both just a plain lot of work. And uh, I often say that you know, in terms of the the televisation of law work and and cooking work, nobody wants to wants to watch twelve hours of vegetable prep or twelve hours of document review. But that's that's the reality of the job. Anyway, I'm curious. Do you see any uh, similarities between your time in the kitchen and your time uh, in the practice of law? It's a good question. I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I, I do agree with what you said. I think that the practice of law, probably like most professions, is not what you think it's going to be when you walk into it. Um, everyone dreams of graduating law school and, you know, arguing a case before the Supreme Court or, you know, doing some murder trial three weeks out because that's what we see on on, on TV or, or in the movies. As you said, it, it certainly isn't like that. I think there's probably a lot of grunt work uh, on, on in both professions, as I'm sure there are in many. But anyone who watches, again, I grew up in the 70s and then the 80s, anyone who watches legal dramas or legal shows whether it's L.A. Law or Allie McBeal and thinks that that's what it's like. They're in for a rude awakening. So, 
Yeah, no doubt. But do you find your cooking, is it more, it sounds like it is, and this is great if it is, it's more counterpoint to law. So even if there is some drudgery in chopping up the vegetables, that's your relaxation time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's how I unwind. It's how I de-stress. It's how I focus. it's, It's almost a transition between work and then focusing on my family, coming home, or you know, leaving the dining room, which is the office nowadays, uh, leaving this room, going into the kitchen and sort of putting on that family slash dad hat for a little while. It transitions to, you know, then feeding the family and taking care of them. Right. Okay. So fair to say you're probably not going to look to dabble professionally in the culinary world. You know, I <laughs> don't see at this age uh, a, a career shift. I just don't. I just don't. Yeah. Fair. I know how you feel. Fair enough. Really, my last question here, Will, I love to share cooking tips with people on Chef Demoni. And, and what I look for is something so quick, so simple that, I, that it probably doesn't even warrant the title of recipe. But is there something that something that you like to prepare or a technique you can describe in 30 seconds or a minute that somebody can take 15 minutes and put it together on a busy weeknight? Sure. And, 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 I, and we already touched on it. The idea of pickling vegetables is so easy and so simple and uh, so worthwhile that anyone, and literally anyone can do it. I mean, it really is, you know, almost equal parts vinegar and water, almost equal parts salt and sugar, throw it together, boil it, pour it over whatever veggies you have. You can let it sit for 15 minutes. You can let it set, sit for a couple of weeks and it just changes a meal. You know, pickled onions that will, pickled red onions that literally take hands-on work seven minutes will change anything you cook for the rest of the week. Throw them on a sandwich, throw them in a salad, throw them on top of some grilled seafood or grilled meat or grilled tofu. It changes the meal and it's simple and it's easy. And, you know, it reduces food waste, which is fantastic. And uh, I think that's that's a direction more folks should go in. Wonderful. Couldn't agree more. I think it's a great tip. Thank you. And my last question, typically, I think I can answer it. I think I may have answered it already. The best place for people to follow you is at Will the Cooking Lawyer on Instagram. Am I right? Sure. I think that'd be a lot of fun. (laughs) Okay, terrific. Well, listen, Will, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time out of uh, no doubt what is a busy week for you. Thank you for being on Chef Demoni. Again, my pleasure. From now on, I am making pickles on Sundays, and I can't wait to get back to Boston to dive into the culinary scene there. And maybe I can snag an invitation to Will's for dinner while I'm in town. Thanks again, Will. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on Chef Timoni. And for introducing me to your friend, Matt Curtin. Matt is a partner at the New York Brewery with the most interesting name I've ever heard for a brewery, Sing Sing Kill. Ever heard of Sing Sing Prison? Well, this brewery is practically in the shadow of the prison. But the kill part might not be quite what you're thinking it is. Matt explains it all in our interview ahead. You'll also hear from Matt on how committed his brewery is to using local producers and to minimizing their environmental impact, to the point that they have had their grains arrive at the brewery first via sloop, traveling the Hudson River under sail, and then by electric bike. This is a brewery full of great stories, and I also asked Matt about his early days in brewing way back in the early 90s in Syracuse. Matt's stories there reminded me a lot of making wine and beer in the old apartment with Ian, but Matt has actually gone on to do this professionally in a serious way. 
All right, here we go with stories on brewing and breweries and one very interesting brewery name. Here's my talk with Matt Curtin. Matt, listen, thank you so much for joining me here. A uh, great connection between Gibsons and New York. Thanks for being on Cheftimony. All right. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's start with the early 90s, because I was reading about that on your website, and that sounded like when you got into brewing in a serious way in Syracuse. Maybe you'll walk us through your your history with brewing. So, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, in the early 90s, you know, we, I didn't have a home computer and the Internet didn't exist in the framework that it does now. So, you know, for home brewers, if you had a, a very strong home brewing club in your city and a couple of good homebrew stores, that's kind of how you did it. I was very lucky. Uh, Syracuse uh, had Salt City Brewers, Salt City Brew Club, and there were two great uh, homebrew shops that had kind of been there for a long time. And uh, the homebrewer group there was kind of a mixture of like the old guard kind of, you know, guys that had farms and were brewing kind of family and traditional recipes uh, in upstate New York. And then guys like me, kids like me, I mean, I was 23 years old at that point, you know, just kind of trying to brew these beers that I've read about, but I hadn't had a chance to taste it because there were no distribution in, in New York and, uh, you know, for really eclectic styles of beer. So, you know, I bought, like everybody else, pretty much, I got uh, Charlie Papazian's uh, Homebrewer's Bible and um, read it cover to cover and really immersed myself in that culture. And I went full on beer geek on it and just started homebrewing in uh, my tiny apartment on a horrible electric range top uh but <laughs> it wasn't an optimal setup i'll just say <laughs> fair enough well you know it's interesting i recently caught up with my law school roommate and we were reminiscing about home brewing and uh, it was literally in the bathroom under the bathroom sink we had the carboy all set up in there and yeah it was great uh, our products were not great but it was a good experience <laughs> absolutely and you know everything kind of has evolved since then the uh the surest method for sanitizing was using uh clorox bleach and a diluted framework you know you had like a diluted bleach solution and uh problem with that is you can't have bleach in your finished products and then you had to rinse everything afterwards and so you reinfect things you just sanitize so it was like it was a nightmare <laughs> now i read you were uh you were working with or brewing with your roommate at the time was that will it, w- it was not it was my other friend andy okay. we all worked uh retail food establishments um i worked for yeah. uh, wegman's food markets uh i was a fish cutter you know doing working with food all day and, and doing that type of um you know that type of job you kind of need something that you do for yourself to keep yourself sane and sure. uh, at that point you know we were brewing one two maybe three batches of beer a week our tiny apartment smelled like a fermentation chamber there was just <laughs> car boys bubbling everywhere uh we did have one of the kegerators on so there was always a you know at least one keg of homebrew tapped and uh we're constantly cleaning bottles in the tub you know <laughs> right. soaking the labels <laughs> off and it was like oh, that's good <laughs> one and so w- was will involved in that uh process at all or were you working with them or just sharing a beer on the weekend or how oh, did that yeah work? uh so uh will and i had been roommates uh, at undergrad at Syracuse University and uh, had maintained a close relationship uh, ever since then. And, um, you know, I was always throwing my latest uh, soy sauce beer batch at him just to, to <laughs> see what his thoughts were, you know. And, and it was interesting because the food and beer cross over so well together. Like and whenever I'm leading tours in, in our brewery currently, in our commercial space here, you know, I, I make the joke, you know, I'm more chef than scientist in here. I kind of everything goes by by uh, the sensory for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it really is quite magical, isn't it? How 
beer can pair with food and different beers pair with different food. It's a friend of mine here is a, what's the term Cicerone, which I learned is sort of the, the beer sommelier. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's great to see that beer culture has come so far. You know, when I talk about homebrewing like that, when we started, you know, there's probably, there was four different types of beer you could get. There were only five commercial licenses at the peak of consolidation in New York state for brewers. So that'll tell you how, how kind of desperate you had to be. And everything was either imported from England or Germany, or uh, if you were lucky, you found some Belgian beers, you know, and uh, right now, you know, Hudson Valley, like where we are, the beer scene has just exploded um, within the last I'd say 10 years, everybody's making phenomenal beer and everybody's kind of figuring out how that beer works with food. It no longer is it, you know, you got the light beer or the dark beer, you know? Right, right. Yeah. You finally have some more choice. Well, well, tell us first about, tell us how you made the, made the transition into brewing professionally and, uh, and starting Sing Sing Kill. So, uh, you know, Sing Sing Kill Brewery uh, is a New York farm brewery here in Austin, New York, in the Hudson Valley. And my wife and I moved to town about 13 years ago. When we moved in, we found out that uh, you know one of uh, my wife's friends from high school they had moved to town about a year before. So we started hanging out with that friend group, um, you know, barbecues, family birthdays, things like that. But my partner is a Union Fifty Two grip down in the in the film industry in New York City. He works a ton. Uh, at that point, I was a store team leader for Whole Foods Market, so I worked a ton. Uh, so any any time that we got together, you know, we'd exchange craft beers and kind of you know discuss because Eric, my partner, had a frame of reference. He had a, a palate already. It wasn't like I was trying to sell a triple IPA to somebody who only drinks Bud Light. You know? right. um, so uh, to find somebody like that here, I was very lucky. And you know, we kind of kicked around ideas, and then I started at this point, and I had been homebrewing for over twenty years, and you know, I really did it. Because I'm the mad scientist, I like to be, you know, in the garage, just working on something to make it the best I possibly can, because that's what you do. I'm involved with every aspect of the process. And I really, really enjoy that. And so, you know, Eric kind of suggested, he's like, hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we start a brewery? And uh, the New York Farm license was the thing that kind of really sealed it for us, because that was a a brewing license that came about um, in order to encourage New York family farmers to not sell their land or lease their land to the fracking industry. So, you know, Eric, and I were both uh, really into the anti-fracking movement. You know, we both uh, try to live as sustainably as possible, uh, small green footprints and all that. So we, we started really kind of thinking about the idea of the brewery and how, you know, we could support New York State agriculture. And it was a perfect fit for us. Absolutely. You know, I was going to ask you about this later, but let's jump to it now because and it's it's what is Sing Sing Kill doing uh, specifically on the environmental side. I know that's important to you. But I also know that there's a whole bunch of greenwashing that goes on in the culinary world, right? Like people will make all sorts of claims about how they're environmentally friendly, but it sounds like it actually matters to you. So what are, what are some of the practical steps you're taking? So uh, I'll, I'll give you the boring stuff first, and then we, okay. can, we can go for the really fancy stuff. Um, you know, the thing was we were able to design our entire space with uh, the idea of having the smallest green footprint as possible. So, of course, all of our... Uh, Single-use items in the tap room are compostable. We use only green cleaning agents in the tap room. In our construction build-out, we use LEED-certified architects and builders so that, you know, our building process was also green. Our brew house is a... uh, it works on a thermal fluid system. So usually you'll have either a direct fire, which means you probably have natural gas, or you'll have a steam boiler. You probably also then have natural gas, or you have an electric system that are very, they're kind of, they're unreliable, um, and they use a lot of electricity. So ours um, is a closed system that heats our brewery. Eventually we can power it with two solar cells on the roof of our building. 
we rent and we have not been able to negotiate that yet from our uh, from our landlord but those are still in process you know um that's the kind of our stretch goal with the brew house another thing you'll see a lot from brewery operations is that you know industry-wide it's not unusual to have a 10 to 1 water usage uh ratio um we were able to actually keep our water usage uh, to about what the normal uh, family of four uh, uses over the last three years. Um, we've done that because we have a number of different systems that are in place to recapture gray water um, that we actually then can reprocess and use for future batches or to clean our system. You know, so it's kind of everything. And then the exciting part is the ingredient side. You know, We're located in the Hudson Valley. So about 30 minutes from us, eh, maybe 40 minutes from us is where our maltster is located. That's Hudson Valley malt, Dennis, uh, hand malts, grains that are grown within the two counties around him. Most of the grain that he malts, the two row barley and the organic six row barley that we use is grown on Miglarelli's farm. That's only two miles down the road from where he actually malts it. Then this last summer, uh, we were able to loop in with the Sloop Apollonia out of Hudson, New York. It's a sailing vessel. It's trying to restart the uh, tonnage shipping down the Hudson, uh, just like kind of the old way. The Hudson used to be the, the, the superhighway um, that transported all these goods. So we, you know, our last two grain deliveries have been under sail power. Um, then that we electric bike up to the brewery. So it's, it's when wow. the more we talk about these stories, the more they kind of seem outlandish. But it's just, you know, like-minded individuals doing the right thing and, and trying to work together to, to do the best for our environment and for the local farms and agriculture. And, you know, I'm just I just feel super lucky that we're able to do those sort of things. It's amazing. It's so good to hear. And I think apart from, you know, doing the right thing and, uh, you know, paying attention to the both the boring side and the exciting side to keep your footprint low. It's it's fun for consumers like people like me. Right. Like we love a good story. So that's so fantastic that the malt is sailing. You know, I can picture yeah. it sailing the Hudson. Right. Yeah, it's great. And, uh, you know, the um, the the captain, Captain Sam Merritt out of Hudson, uh, that, that is uh, is captaining the sloop was really instrumental in hooking us up with that. They did uh, they did a couple of runs down to New York City as well. And um, it looks like this next run, they're going to have a full ship. So we're really excited for them too. You know, we're gonna, he's actually shipping some consumer goods down so you can get honey and some aged whiskeys that were done in Hudson, New York. And then ultimately, we'd love to be sending our beer back up. Um, that's kind of like the end goal. Sure. Yeah. Close the circle. Absolutely. Well, Matt, please tell us about the name of your brewery. You and I had a had a brief discussion about this when we first connected uh, last week. And I, I, well, I was going to say as a lawyer, I've heard of Sing Sing, but it's not really as a lawyer. It's as a consumer of a culture, right? Sing Sing Prison is just so well known. Absolutely. And the name the name of your brewery, I got to say, is a little striking. Sing Sing Kill. So tell us about that. All right. So. Uh we're located in the village of Ossining. The, the original name for the village of Ossining was Sing Sing, and it was named, kind of co-opted the name of Native American tribes that were here that uh, when uh, the Irvings uh, moved into the area. So uh, when they decided to name the village Sing Sing, a few years later, New York State needed to locate its second correctional facility outside of New York City. So Auburn was already in existence. They took half of the inmates down and they built Sing Sing Prison. And uh, that's when Ossining, the village, decided to change their name to kind of distance themselves for it. And, uh, you know, when we were talking about naming our business, you know, my uh, partner came up. He's like, hey, what do you think about Sing Sing Kill Brewer? And I was like, all right, that's, you know, it's kind of polarizing name. But, but you know, what you need to know is that in this area, it was settled um, by the Dutch. And in the middle Dutch, Kill is uh, a creek, a river, a tributary, right? So you have Peekskill, Wallkill, Fishkill, 
Eddie kill, you know, all these kills. And the Sing Sing kill runs through the center of our village. It's the name of the creek that runs here. So, you know, it was kind of us, you know, giving a nod to the history and and letting everybody know, you know, that this is really what the kill was about. And so we do uh, play with that a little bit. Our first uh, T-shirts that we put out was like, it's water, not murder. Because when people hear Sing Sing, <laughs> right. they're like, oh, I'm going to get shanked in the shower or something. You know? Yeah. Um, but no, it's actually the water, the creek. Okay, fair enough. Well, and that's good to point out because Sing Sing itself is really the source of a number of phrases that have made their way into the English language, right? Yeah, um, you know, Sing Sing Prison, uh, maximum security New York State penitentiary that's still in existence and it's only about a half mile from our spot. When you got sent up the river, uh, you got sent up the river from New York City to uh, to do your bid in uh, Sing Sing. And then the old... Uh, prison looks like a house so it was called the big house so you got sent to the big uh-huh. house and then uh you know a little creepier side uh old sparky is the uh the electric chair that's actually still uh it's not in use in new york state but uh, i still i think they still maintain some of it and um it's still a very large feature of, of the prison there so uh you know all these things you know it's definitely part of you know, the, the the common lexicon like everybody hears these terms and they're like I don't know, up the river, you know, you get sent up the river to Sing Sing is what happens. <laughs> that's where if you're going up the river, that's where you're winding up. Excellent. Well, listen, I want to keep us to my uh, time estimate, but I can't let you go, Matt, without asking for some recommendations. You know, the summer season is almost upon us. Uh, days are getting warmer. So really last couple of questions, what should I be sipping this summer? And maybe, maybe I'll ask for two picks. One, uh, from Sing Sing Kill for when I can finally make it back to New York, and then maybe a general type or style uh, for those of us who are not going to be able to travel for the next little while. All right, so from Sing Sing Kill Brewery right now, you know, the spring is upon us, warm weather, uh, you're talking about backyard barbecues and all that, and uh, our, our collaboration with Riverkeeper uh, on the Hudson River, uh, it, we do every year, and we do it around Earth Day, and it comes out, and it's a wheat beer. It's light. It's refreshing. It's made with 100% New York State ingredients. Uh, the hop profile and the yeast combine to give it almost a lemony bite to it. Um, people are a little, usually a little surprised that I haven't added any fruit to the wheat when they taste it, um, but that's all uh, comes from ingredients. And it's a and it's a lighter beer. It's four point seven. So if you're going to have a couple, you're not going to get yourself quite quite as much in trouble. You know, we we like to have that in our tap room. We like to have some lower ABV op offerings, and uh, that's perfect for this time of year. You know, seasonally, I look to this time of year to start looking for uh, any saisons, uh, any farmhouse saisons that I can find. You usually see people start working with uh, interesting ingredients that they've had around, and I think uh, you know I, I always look. I always look for local also, you know, so depending on where I am, uh, I don't want to, you know, necessarily drink a beer that's been shipped, you know, halfway around the world or trucked across the country. I try to drink as local as possible. All right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And as, as I was saying earlier, uh, before we started recording, we've got some awesome options here on the Sunshine Coast of BC. So I'm now going to keep eyes peeled for a saison. All right. Well, listen, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Where can my listeners best uh, follow along with uh, with what you're up to at Sing Sing Kill? Well, you know, uh, well, thanks for having us. You know, really super psyched to be on with you. You know, and, you know, right now our uh, our beer is just starting to work its way out into the market in uh, in the New York City area. Um, we're a suburban New York brewery in the Hudson Valley. So tap room or in and around uh, here is anywhere you can find us. So. Okay, terrific. And singsingkill.com, do I have that right? Yeah, singsingkillbrewery.com, and then Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. All the usual suspects. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Matt. All right, cheers. 
I can't tell you how excited I am to get back to New York City. There are so, so many places that I want to see again. And now there's one that I definitely want to see for the first time, Sing Sing Kill Brewery. Thanks, Matt, for joining me and for sharing some great stories. Okay, a little bit of housekeeping now. Long-time listeners may have noticed an alarming decrease in the amount that I'm talking about Las Vegas, but fear not, it remains my favorite city to visit, and I remain as keen on the Vegas culinary scene as ever. And, great news, very soon I will be bringing you an interview with not one, but two amazing Las Vegas chefs. Let's just say that you will be hearing from two sharp chefs. I am really excited to bring you that talk, and of course to continue to dream about all of the food and the experiences that await me on my next trip to the Mojave Desert. So, that Vegas interview is coming up soon. Reviews and ratings. My thanks to the very kind people who have left star ratings and or written reviews for Cheftimony on the Canadian and American versions of Apple Podcasts. Yes, indeed, depending on your country, you'll see different ratings and reviews for the podcasts that you follow. So that's all to say, if you're enjoying the show, no matter where you're listening from, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and review for Cheftimony. That would mean a lot. And please remember, you can get in touch with me directly if you've got a question or comment for the show, perhaps a guest suggestion or a topic idea, do get in touch. One specific request this week, I'm planning another call-in show similar to the Sourdough episodes where guests can call in to record a segment up to five minutes long. This one is going to be on fitness and cooking, so if you know someone who's perhaps a marathoner or a triathlete or a distance cyclist or really any fitness pursuit who also loves to cook, please let me know. That person could be a chef, could be a lawyer, could be neither. Basically, I'd love to hear from fitness enthusiasts who are also really thoughtful about what they cook to fuel their activities. Any suggestions, please let me know. You can get in touch with me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Those are all at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, you can find me under my name, Graham McLennan. Or you can always send me a good old-fashioned email, and those go to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm really glad you joined us for today's show. I'm Graham McLennan. I will see you two Fridays from today, right here on Cheftimony. <laughs>